Let's do this. Let's pray, and then we will hit the ground running in Ephesians. God, we just thank you for today. We thank you for just this opportunity to come study your word. And God, I pray that that you would speak to us tonight, that your Holy Spirit would illuminate uh, the, the truths of your word, that we could know you, that we could fall in love with you, and that we could understand your love for us in a deep way tonight. God, it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, um, Pastor Lynn is not here, obviously. Pastor Lynn's sick, and I'm asking you to please pray for him, because I don't want to preach this Sunday, no offense, but uh, we need Pastor Lynn well. So, we're praying that he'll be better, and that he'll feel great when he wakes up in the morning, and uh, so I get the privilege of being with you tonight, but because I'm a rookie here, I think I've only been here one time this semester, and there's other people who are rookies, I want us to start off with this. What is one thing, as you've been studying, because some of you are here week after week, what is one thing that God has spoken to you through Ephesians? Or maybe the the one takeaway that in the the first couple of chapters, halfway through chapter 3 now of Ephesians, what's the one thing that you would say, here's what God has taught me? Or you would say, this is what I think Paul wants us to know. So as you've been studying this for a number of weeks, what stands out in your mind? So we've got the microphone runners ready. Don't be shy. Raise your hand. And, and help those of us who haven't been here that much to get caught up in the book of Ephesians and what you've been learning. Have you learned anything? <laughs> All right. Get ready because we need more. <laughs> okay, so one of the things that stuck out for me that I've noticed in other conversations around church is whether all sins are the same. Hmm which Pastor Lynn has gone over, Okay. and I'm not qualified to answer. <laughs> I'm not asking you guys to ask questions. I'm saying, what, what do you know? We'll get to the questions in a minute. Yeah. The power of the cross. The power of the cross. Okay. Somebody else, and if you're a long ways from a microphone, just shout it out really loud. Saved by grace. Saved by grace. I would think that's a pretty important part of what Paul's trying to say in Ephesians, right? That it's not by our effort, it's not by what we're doing, it's all about the cross. It's all about what Christ has done for us, and we are saved by grace through our faith as we trust in what Christ has done, right? What else? Okay, I'm going to have to report back to Pastor Lynn. They don't remember a thing you said. In Ephesians 1.5, when he talks about being adopted mm-hmm. by God, I think that is one of the most moving Verses in the in the whole uh, book, absolutely. And reading into that, you know, I I went ahead and did a little study on that, and it is just a tremendous wealth of richness absolutely. to be adopted by God. Absolutely, absolutely. That He allows us to be sons and daughters of the Most High God. He chooses us. Yeah. Um, I liked uh, chapter two, verse ten. It says, "For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for His good works." Yeah. And for me, it just means that God has a purpose for my life absolutely. and that he can move through me. And yeah. so. Absolutely. In the midst of that adoption, in the midst of that being saved by grace and the cross, that, that God wants to work in me so he can also work through me to this world. Yeah. The great mystery. The great mystery. Yeah. All, all throughout this, Paul is talking about there's, a, there's this mystery of God and the work that God is doing and, and that God has, has now revealed through his son uh, some things that Old Testament prophets wish that they would have known that in Jesus Christ he has revealed these truths. All right, anybody else have a burning one real quick? 
So, so this is the foundation. This is how we approach our text for tonight. It's, it's with all these things that Paul has been laying out fundamental doctrines of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So then we get to the passage that, that um, Tim Beal filled in last week, did a great job. I listened to that. And as he was talking through Ephesians chapter 3 and he was dealing with uh, verses 10 and 11 and 12 and 13 and how God is wanting to reveal through the church his manifold wisdom and do this powerful work. Then we get to verse 14. And this prayer that Paul prays for, for the, uh, the church at Ephesus. And, and to, to really get all of chapter 3 in our context, let's just look at chapter 3 as a whole. It's broken down basically into three sections. So in chapter 3, you have verses 1 through 13. And, and in those verses, Paul is describing that mystery that we just talked about. The mystery that has been entrusted to him. The, the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul is explaining that, that this mystery is something that, that God is doing in Jesus Christ. And then in verses 14 and 9 through 19, Paul begins to pray that, that this mystery would become known by the church at Ephesus. Let's apply it to us today. That this mystery would be known not just in our heads, but in our hearts. Not just information, but experience. That we would know this God. And in 14 through 19, Paul is praying this over the church. And then in verses 20 and 21, it's a doxology. Maybe you're familiar in your church tradition, a benediction. And it's this note of celebration. And we're going to try to finish chapter 3 tonight and try to really capture what Paul is talking about. But it's a celebration. And Paul ends on this note of triumph. It's like a big worship kind of song that Paul is saying, this is who we are. This is who God is. And this is what God desires. But let's start, and we'll get there in a moment. Let's start in verse 14. And figure out what it is that Paul is praying for this church. So in verses 14 and 15, Paul says this. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. So that first phrase, for this reason. You can't even understand the the full depths of the prayer that Paul is getting ready to pray without understanding what you guys just said. For this reason, he's saying, in light of the fact that it's all about the cross, in light of the fact that we're saved by grace, in light of the fact that there's a mystery, in light of the fact of all that God has done for us, adopting us as sons and daughters, in light of that, for this reason, Paul says, I'm overwhelmed and I kneel before God, my Father. Now, now, real quickly, let's just, let's just try to understand, what is it that, God, that Paul means when he says, I kneel before God, the Father? What kind of information is he trying to convey when he says, I kneel before God, the Father? Let's, let's, um, let's flip there. Matthew chapter 6. And I want you to see a couple of these verses because sometimes we fly through this and we miss the depths of what is being said here. Just like this passage on adoption in, in 1.5. We, we miss what is really being conveyed through this. So uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse um, 9. This will be really familiar to you. Jesus is instructing his disciples how they should pray. And this is what he said. Pray this way. Our Father who art in heaven. Now you can glance over that and just say, okay, well. But but for a a Jew that was revolutionary, Jesus is not saying that you approach the God on some kind of religious basis. He's not saying you approach God on some kind of activity basis. Uh, basis. He's saying you approach God 
In an intimate relationship as a son to a father, as a daughter to a father. Now, now some of us in this room, we, we may not have the best relationship with our earthly fathers. And it, and it sort of perverts the way that we can look and receive God's love and who God is our father. But, but what you need to understand is when the Bible speaks of God as our father, it talks in the most compassionate and empathetic loving and kind ways possible that God is our father and he can be trusted because he loves us with an unfailing love and he is there for us and it says flip one other chapter Matthew chapter 7 starting in verse 7 Jesus is telling us again this is how we should pray ask and it will be given to you seek and you will find knock and the door will be opened to you For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? He's saying our Father in heaven, He knows what is best. He is good. He is fundamentally good. And just like an earthly father, if a son comes to them and asks for something that's a need, you don't punish them with some kind of other treat. You give them what they need. How much more so will God our Father who is in heaven give to those who ask, who seek, who knock? But here's how Paul specifically in Ephesians relates this passage. He says, for this reason, all the stuff in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2 and the first part of 3. For this reason, I kneel before the Father. So I want you to talk with me. What does it mean? What is being conveyed when Paul says, I kneel before the Father? What kind of posture is conveyed by kneeling? Submission. Submission. What else? Comfort. Comfort. Okay. What else? Reverence. Humbly. Trust. Absolutely. It's all this stuff. You've got to understand, this is a posture that Paul is saying before this great God, before this loving Father, before this, this, this Creator who knows Him. He says, I kneel before Him. I learned something today about this idea. The, the typical Jewish posture of prayer in that day and age is, is probably a lot like it still is this day. The typical Jewish posture for prayer was standing. If you remember, uh, if you've seen um, pictures of Jews at the Wailing Wall, even in recent days, they're typically standing and they're typically rocking back and forth, reciting prayers over and over again. That This is just a way that they came before God. So a lot of times in Jewish culture, kneeling represented some kind of extraordinary event, some kind of intensity of passion and desire. And so it's not just this, okay, I'm going to go before God and like always, it's he's kneeling down because he is passionately calling out to God. We see a few times throughout scripture where kneeling is done. One example is Solomon, when the temple is being dedicated, Solomon kneels on this wooden uh, platform before the whole entire crowd and, he, and he's praying and thanking God for this this temple that, that they can now worship at. You see an example of Jesus in the garden, kneeling down in prayer before God. And what's really 
being conveyed here by Paul is a posture of our hearts. And it's not a posture of, of, of I deserve something from God. It's not a posture of I'm asking, seeking, and knocking. I'm, I'm praying to you, God, because I have rights. It's really this acknowledgement that, that before God, we're coming humbly. Like you guys have said, we're coming in submission. We're not demanding anything, but we're asking in boldness, not because of who we are, but because of who Christ is. And Paul, and this is what we, we hear throughout the New Testament. You have boldness because Jesus Christ has given you access to come before God, the creator of everything. And when you pray, you have God as your audience. Do we understand that? When we pray, God hears our voices. God hears not just the words we say, but the cries of our hearts. And it's not just this little thing of, oh, I got to pray, get through this, check it off my list. It's you have God listening. You have God's ear. And God wants your ear as well so he can speak into you. And so Paul says it's for this reason. In light of everything that we've been talking about up until this point, I come before God. So here's the specifics of his prayer. He, he basically prays three things over the Ephesian church that I think are interesting for us and helpful for us because if you're like me, your prayer life sometimes can bring conviction onto where your walk with God is. Like, like if I go back and examine how did I pray last week, I can be really convicted that my life's not where I want it to be. That, that the prayers that I write sometimes in my journal or the prayers that come out of my mouth, they're, they're often self-serving kind of prayers. They're often superficial prayers. You know, it, it would be one thing if Paul went to this next section and Paul said, okay, I've got a list of things that we need to pray about. You know, um, we need to pray for my uncle. He's sick. We need to pray for my donkey. I think I need to get a newer model. I need to pray for my job. Now, guess what? There's nothing wrong at all with praying for any of those things. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm first among us in praying for healing. I'm right there with you guys. But, but what I want us to do is allow God to examine why do we pray what we pray for. I remember vividly growing up in, in church. And when I grew up um, in, in my particular church, we had prayer meetings. And a lot of times in those prayer meetings, we would pass the microphone and people got to say, hey, I have a prayer request. Will everybody pray for? And it literally was my aunt's sick cat. Will everybody pray for? And it was just these things. And I'm like, at a young age, I, I wasn't the sharpest tool in the shed, but at a young age, I began to, to think, if that's all that we pray about as a church, if that's all we care about, something's wrong. Like, I remember at a young age thinking, where's the person who's going to stand up and crying and weeping saying, I, my, my, my son or my daughter is lost. My friend, they're, they're lost and they don't know Christ. Where's the people that their hearts are breaking for the world? Why is it that in our prayer meetings it becomes all about us and our needs and what we can get? And I think the model, the example of the Apostle Paul here in what he says, here's what we need to pray about. Not only does it convict, but it's extremely helpful for us to say, here's how I need to model my prayer life in a new fashion. Here's how we corporately could come together and cry out to God in a way that would bring him honor. So 
let's look in verse 16 and we'll get started. The first prayer is a prayer for strength. A prayer for strength. Verse 16, Paul says, or 16 and 17. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his son in your inner being. I pray that he would strengthen you. Verse 17, the first part of it. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Paul here is praying that as a result of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that Christ would dwell in the heart of his readers by faith. So he's, I want you to notice this one little phrase that he, that he says at the very end of verse 16. He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he'll strengthen you through the power in his spirit. But listen, in your inner being. In your inner being. So Paul is praying for something not external, not situational or circumstantial. Paul is praying for the inward part that, that our hearts, that our, our motivations at cornerstone would be pure. That, that our hearts, that our desires as individuals who are following Christ would be pure. Not that the outside stuff is wrong or anything like that. Not that it's wrong to pray for a job or help or healing or anything. But what about the heart? The eternal part of us. The eternal part of what's going on. Paul says, don't forget that. Flip um, to the left a little bit to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. That's what Paul is crying out, that that the outward wouldn't take precedence over the inward, the heart. Verse 17, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. That, that in the proper perspective and priority of things, we would not allow the temporary, we would not allow the circumstances of our lives to distract the core of who we are, the core of our faith, the core of who Christ is for us and among us. Because he says, praying for, that we would be strengthened in our inner being. I'm reading this book right now. And, and the, the title of the book is You Can Change. And when I first got the book, I thought, oh, this is going to be silly. It, it wasn't in the self-help section. So I thought, well, there's at least one positive thing. If it was you can help and in the self-improvement section, then um, it would be different. But you can change. And the, the fundamental question the book begins by asking is, is there an area of your life where you feel like you need to change? And I said, can I limit it to 15? So, so let's just think through this personally, and, and I want some of you to answer this question. Let's say you do recognize an area of your life that you need to change, or someone comes to you. Let's do it like that. It's a little bit easier. Someone comes to you. They have an area of their life that they want to change. Biblically, you begin to take them where? What do you tell them? If somebody says, I, I have an area of my life I want to change, fundamentally, where would you take them in the Bible? What would you try to say to them to say, here, I want to help you change. Or would you say, watch Dr. Phil? Okay? Raise your hand so we can get, get a microphone running. There's one back there. Fruits of the Spirit. Okay? Okay. 
So, so let me just stop a little bit and let's be real specific. Take a, take a microphone to rob with your hand. Okay, so somebody comes to, to you and, and they say, I want to change. And, and you say, what? Uh, I guess you lead them to the fruits of the Spirit and okay. that's a you know, godly and wholesome. Okay. So um, here's, yeah, here's, here's what, how the Bible describes, you know, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and generosity and self-control. Here's the fruits of the Spirit. But then they say, well, how do I get those? You don't have to answer that part of it. Something was back here. Renewing of your mind. Okay. So you just say, hey, go renew your mind. How does that work? Uh, no, no, no. That's not what you say. Okay, let's hold it there, though. Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is um, the book of Proverbs. A friend right. of mine told me to just read one a day and begin to meditate on that. And whatever right. pops out to you, just begin to journal and pray about it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Find out what they believe. Is that what you said? If they believe in Christianity or what. Sure. Because otherwise you don't have any foundation Absolutely. Okay, great point. Great point, absolutely. So, yeah, I, I, assuming they're, they're a Christian, you say, okay, here's the fruits of the Spirit, the renewing of your mind. They're Proverbs you can meditate on. But, but, but here's what I want to say. Here's the trap that I fear that, that we have fallen into, into our society, that we have fallen into in the way that we approach Christ, that, that we've taken this action-oriented approach, do something. You want to change? Okay, that's good. You need to do something. So here's seven principles for a better marriage. Here's 14 ways to have a healthy kid next week. I'm not bashing anybody or anything, but, but we've made us action-oriented. Here's a, here's a comment. She's going to answer it for us. Um, and, 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 and there's nothing wrong with any of these things. I'm wondering, though, if we've got the cart before the horse. Well, I'm wondering if we have to do all that or just start with prayer. Okay. Yep. Maybe we say, can I pray with you to start with? Have you prayed about what's going on? Okay. You've got a change project. Somebody wants to, you've got something you want to change. How do you approach it? I think you read the scripture, but the key is the transition between your, your, your thoughts to your heart. Okay. And make it part of your life and part of your daily uh, process. It's got to be felt in the heart. Okay. Yeah. Ten commandments. Point them to ten commandments. Okay. For me, it would be um, to understand the depths of grace and um, what Jesus' sacrifice did for me. And once I really, really tasted that, it could do no less than change everything. Okay. Does it glorify God? Okay. Sure. And possibly even sin versus... Sure, a lens that you can, yeah. a filter that you can look through. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and and, and here's oh, one more. Um, my thought was to seek and see what the will of God is, because yeah. God may not want you to change in that area, or He may have you change in a different direction. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, but but at the core of what it is, all of you are, are are right there. But but here's what I'm what I'm saying by the cart before the horse, um, and it would be exactly what you just said. It would be we we talk about change. And, and let's use a biblical word. We talk about transformation, yet then we put all of the responsibility on us to do it. When the Bible says it's already been done for you, and the problem is allowing the work that Christ has done on a cross 
and being raised from the dead by God to become a reality in our life. So the, the, the call of God on our lives, I think I can argue pretty passionately from Scripture, is not do better, try harder. It's trust more. It's look to Christ. It's trust in the cross. It's believe. It's already been done for you. You don't have to try anymore. Give up. That's why I think Paul says, in kneeling before God, in kneeling before the Father, I recognize my inability and His sufficiency. Because I think we've created a bunch of Christians, and I'm one of them, I'm a product of that, that says, if I just try a little bit harder, if I just do a little bit more, then God will be happy. God will like me a little bit more. And then on the days when I mess up, I'm like, oh, God just doesn't, He doesn't like me today. As if my salvation depended on me. When the the verse here clearly tells us that I pray that out of His glorious riches, not my ability, not my activity, out of His glorious riches, that He would strengthen you. That He would strengthen you through the power of His Spirit in your inner being, in your depths. So that, in the Greek, that's a a word, henna. It's a clause that means you need to pay attention. You need to know what that's there for. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This word to dwell, that Christ would live in us. That Christ would make our heart his home. And there's a little booklet written by a guy named Robert Munger. And he pictures the Christian life as a house. And Jesus in this little booklet goes room to room to room throughout the house. And he goes into the library. And the library represents the mind. And in this library of our house, Jesus finds trash and all sorts of world worthless things. And he throws them out and Jesus replaces them with his word, renewing of your mind. He goes into the dining room and he finds the appetites, the sinful desires listed on this worldly menu. And on the menu in place of things like prestige and materialism, Jesus places humility and meekness and love. He goes into the living room. He goes into the workshop. He goes into a closet of secret sins. And and the, the, the climax of the book is only when Jesus has cleaned every room, every closet, every corner of sin, could he settle down and be at home. And that's the call. That's, that's the, the invitation that we're given here even by Paul to say, the gospel is not about trying harder, doing more. The gospel is about trusting Christ completely. True change is God's work. It's based off of his glorious riches, not out of our strength. Look at that passage where it says that. It says, um, out of his glorious riches. Out of his glorious riches. It means he's got all the riches you need. He's got all the, the, the power and sufficiency available for every need that you have. And out of his riches, Paul prays we would be strengthened. You see, if we have a millionaire that's here, and, and we were to take up an offering because I have a family up here who's homeless and poor and they don't have any food. If that millionaire says, you know what, I'll give you $5. None of us would say, Wow. Because they're not really sacrificing. They're just giving something. If that millionaire said, I'll give $500. I have some extra money here. I'll help you. It's not giving out of his riches. He's just giving a little something. But if that millionaire said, here, $50,000, that'll help. 
That's giving out of your riches because he has the resources, the ability to help. So when the scriptures say here that, that out of the riches of Christ, out of the glorious riches, this is what scripture is saying. You and I, we do not have a need that God can't meet. We don't have a need that God cannot meet. We don't face an obstacle or circumstance in our, in our lives ever that God can't handle. All right, let me play a little game with you real quick. I need you to do something. Get a number in your head. Get a number in your head. Just You got the number? You're thinking about that number? Okay. How many of you picked a number above 50,000? Anybody? One. One. Two. So two people out of three or four hundred picked a number over 50,000. You could have picked any number there is. Any number. You do realize there's more numbers over 50,000 than there are under 50,000. But you picked, what did you pick? Eight. Four. Oh, that's horrible. 58. That's the kind of, that's the way we think. Why? Because we think based off of our experience. We respond based off of who we are in our limitations. But what Paul is saying here is out of his glorious riches, which are unfathomable, which are infinite in their resources, that's how we should live our lives. That's how we should base our decisions. That's what kind of faith God is calling us to have. Not a faith that is based on us and our fours and 58s and eights, but off of an infinite God for whom nothing is impossible, who created everything there is out of nothing, yet we choose to live our lives based off of what we have to offer when infinite glorious riches are at our disposal. And so Paul's prayer is, I pray that you will be strengthened. Strengthened, not because of who you are, but because of who God is. Just real quick, flip, flip over to Ephesians chapter 1. Let's just fly through a few of these things. This is, this is who you are. This is what God has done for you. Ephesians 1, 3. You have been uh, blessed in heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Verse 5. You have been adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. Verse 7. You have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Verse 8, that he lavished on us with wisdom and understanding. Verse 9, he has made known to us the mystery of his will. Verse 13, he has sealed us with the Holy Spirit. Verse 14, he's given us a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. This is who you are. This is what God has done. This is the, he's calling us to live strengthened by who Christ is, not who we are. So basically, let me summarize all of what I'm trying to say. Gospel change, true change, true transformation, true strength. It's not about changing your behavior. It's not about changing your activity. It's about changing your heart. It's about changing the motivations behind what, why you do what you do. Second prayer is this. Starting in the middle of verse 17. It's a prayer for love. And so in the middle of verse 17, Paul writes, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. 
And I pray that you being rooted and established in love. Here Paul mixes metaphors. First of all, he says rooted. That's agricultural kind of metaphor. And it's the picture of trees sending down their roots deep into the ground. Because that's where the nourishment comes from. We know that pretty well in the desert, right? The, the tree that's, that's just out there without our irrigation system and our drip and all that. The tree that's just out there, the only way it survives is not because of the rain that comes in the desert. It's because the roots are down deep. And so those, those big trees with deep roots, they can, they can go weeks and weeks and weeks without any rain, without any nourishment from the outside. Because they're not dependent on these external circumstances. The strength, the nourishment, they're rooted down deep. It's the same picture that we are told that we should be like a tree that's planted by the rivers. That, that our roots are deep and when circumstances come and when winds blow and those kind of things happen, we're not, we're not blown over, we're not destroyed because our nourishment comes because we're rooted in who God is. He uses a metaphor, the next one is you're established. The metaphor is architectural, it's like buildings Paul says our lives, they have this foundation, a solid foundation of God's unfailing love. And he uses this uh, poetic language to say that we could grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of God. The infinite love of God. And I've got to hurry and, and, and I can't spend a lot of time there. Verse 19. He prays for fullness. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. To know the love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. And, and this word to know, it is an incredibly interesting word in the Greek language. It, it can literally mean to understand, to perceive, but for the Jews... It was an idiomatic expression that basically meant intercourse between a man and wife. That you would know your spouse intimately. It's not just talking about head knowledge. It's not just talking about facts and figures. It's talking about this. Experiencing love. It's talking about what we're going to talk about for eight weeks here in experiencing God. Not just knowing about God, but truly knowing Him. Experiencing Him in our lives and His call in our lives. And like somebody said, I don't even remember, that, that God has a purpose for you and God has a plan. And He invites you to be a part of His activity. And Paul prays that we would know the love of God. So let me just ask you. How do you know the love of God? How do you even know it? I, I want you to give me some feedback. How do you know it? How, how for you personally, on those days when things are hard, when you maybe don't feel the love of God, how do you know the love of God? He just reminds me through my spirit um, what his word says and it reminds me okay. and it just beautiful yeah it's exactly what paul's praying here that the holy spirit of god even when we don't feel like it he reminds us of the truth of scripture that our feelings and our emotions don't have to dictate where we're going or what we're believing the holy spirit reminds us of truth somebody else all right i'll keep going i can talk all night here's the amazing teaching of scripture you can know the love of God 
internally through the Spirit of God. You can know the love of God by looking to Christ. It's what you said earlier. It's by looking to the cross, understanding what God has done. You can read His Word. And the, the, the Scriptures tell us we begin to know God's love by that. And here's what Scripture says, and here's where it becomes incredibly convicting for me. It says that as we know God's love, as Christ begins to live in us, evidence that God is alive in us is we begin to love other people. And that as we begin to love other people, that's proof that God is really working in us. Love becomes a supernatural component in our lives. It's like breathing. If you want to stop breathing in here tonight, which I don't recommend necessarily, you have to make yourself stop breathing, right? You have to make a choice. I'm going to hold my breath. I don't think any of us just sitting here were like, oh gosh, I forgot to breathe. You make yourself stop breathing. You say... For the Christian, you can't help but love. So if you're not loving, you've somewhere along the way made a deliberate choice to stop loving. You, you can't, as a Christian, stop habitually loving people. Unless you trace that back and say, there must be an area of disobedience that led me astray. That caused me to go that way. On the flip side... To continue the breathing analogy, when Christ is in his proper place in our hearts, we don't have to be told to love. Just like you don't have to be told to breathe. You just love. Yeah. Uh, the way you framed the question originally uh, about uh, what we should do, it seems to me you were talking about the Holy Spirit working in a believer's life. Uh, and call to this believer's attention Absolutely. that uh, a change uh, was in order. Uh, Paul, of course, is talking to a bunch of heathens in Ephesians who became Christians, and they had a huge change. In, but when the Holy Spirit speaks to you, you start to realize that you're a child uh, of the Father, and that's that unconditional love that's there. And... and what I understand, at that point, you're supposed to take a look and and see if you need to change direction to repent. And in, in 1 John, he talks all about how the Father will forgive. If, if we confess and tell the Father what we know that we've been doing, he already knows. But that starts you on this, this track, and it's not something you're doing. The Holy Spirit's already working with Absolutely. you. And so, it's, you know, you can't take the, the credit. Absolutely. And I think, absolutely. That's why Paul, in the end of verse 16, says, absolutely. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. That he's saying the, 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 the agency by which we're even ever convicted in the first place is I didn't realize, oh, whoops, I messed up. The Holy Spirit revealed that to me. You have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I don't decide to come to God on my own. The Spirit convicts me and brings me. And so absolutely agree with you. Yeah, that, that what we're talking about here is the this work of the Spirit in our lives, pointing us back to Christ, calling us to repent, to change, calling us and re- revealing to us the love of God. Um, we'll flip here. This is our last different passage to turn to. First John chapter 4. Yeah, question or a comment. Just another comment, following up a little bit with... The commitment, you also accept responsibility. And this ties really 
very much into the tithing issue because it's a matter of obedience. And when you start putting these things back together, if you are a true believer, you are doing God's will by being obedient, whatever that means. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this next verse will will totally totally agree with that. Sorry. Um, That, like I was just saying about love, the fact that you're showing the fruit of love, that's not... That's not the cause of, of God responding to you. That's the fruit. That's the evidence that you've received God in any area of obedience. It's you're not obeying so that God accepts you. It's I've already been accepted. I've already believed and trusted, been freed to live the life God has called me to. And out of that freedom, out of that acceptance, I obey and do what I've called, been called to do. First John chapter four, uh, verse 19 on this issue of love, and that's what Paul is specifically praying, that, that we would love and that we would be filled up with the love of God. It says, verse 19, we love because he first loved us. It's not about what we've done, it's about what he's done. Verse 20, if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command... Whoever loves God must also love his brother. So what, what Paul is saying um, is, is lines up totally with what John is saying. And it's this idea, and Paul is praying that we would be filled with the fullness of, of God. And that in being filled with the fullness of God, we would begin to look like Christ. We would begin to look like Christ in the way that we love, in the grace that we show, in the plans that we make, in the way that we follow our Father's will for our lives Paul is, and, and Paul is praying for this church that you would be full of Christ and his Holy Spirit and guided and driven. And when he says that, that, that phrase, that you may be filled, you may be filled. It's this really interesting word that, that we could have this picture of, of a cup that's being filled up. But here's an even powerful way that this this phrase is used it refers to total dominance total dominance that you may be filled he's saying that you would be totally dominated that the spirit of god would so take over your motivations so take over the way that you think that your mind would be renewed that the fruit of the spirit would begin to to just ooze out of you that you would be totally dominated by who christ is by what he has done that the spirit would sort of just set you on fire and that other people would see You look like Jesus. You love like Jesus. You're holy like Jesus. You're obedient like Jesus. And this is Paul's prayer. I think for the church of Ephesus. But also for us here today. And then he does this really interesting thing. Starting in verse 20. It it changes grammatically into the form of a doxology. Into praise. It's like almost you can hear he's singing this. Because remember, he's chained up right now. He's in prison. There's a guard right next to him probably. He's chained up. But all of a sudden he breaks out into song maybe. I don't know. He he does that in other places where he's just celebrating. And he's remembering. And and this is what he says starting in verse 20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. According to his power that is at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's just break this down sort of phrase by phrase. Here's here's sort of what Paul is saying. He is able. Just stop there. Whatever you're facing in life, 
Whatever circumstances you're up against. Let the Spirit of God remind you of this truth. God is able. And maybe just in your heart, you just, you just confess and you acknowledge and you declare like Paul, He is able. Take it a little further. He says, He is able to do. You're like, well, but, but that's impossible and that, there's just an obstacle that I can't get over. Remind yourself, He is able to do. He is able to do immeasurably more. He's able to do immeasurably more. You can't even calculate it. You can't fathom it. You can't add it up. It doesn't make sense. He is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask. He's able to do more than you're praying for right now. I can promise you, according to the scripture, whatever prayers you are praying right now are smaller. He is able to do immeasurably more than we ask. He is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. That God is able to do more than you're even dreaming for your life. His plans are, are perfect. We know that Jeremiah 29, 11 tells us that he has a plan for us. It's a plan for good and not for evil. It's a plan to give us a hope and a future. God has a purpose for your life. And he is able to do more, immeasurably more than all that you can ask or imagine. And it says, verse 21, so to him, to, to God, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever and ever. And so Paul is saying this on a note of celebration. He's talking about the glory of God and, and the glory of God is like the total, the sum total of God's love and goodness and splendor and power and wisdom and majesty. And that's the glory of God and, and he's able to do all of this for, for his glory, for his namesake. And so there's this image almost of a, let's just picture it in our language, of like a, a football team carrying their coach after the victory on their shoulders in this note of celebration, triumphant. There's a, there's a picture of this, this um, standing ovation after a great concert with the audience longing for more. It's a, the picture of soldiers returning from battle victoriously and the, the anticipation and the cheering of, of, of just celebrating what's going on. And far more than all that, immeasurably more than all of that, is this note of Paul saying, God is able... God is worthy. And there's nothing on earth that compares to him. And there's nothing that can hold us back. When God is moving in our lives. And when we are trusting him and walking in obedience. And and, and allowing God to be God in our lives. He will do great things. For his glory. For his name's sake. And that his kingdom will go forward. And this promise. Is for our church. If you call Cornerstone home, this promise is just as real for Cornerstone as it was for the church at Ephesus. That God is saying, I will do immeasurably more than all you ask or imagine. Will you follow me? Will you obey? Will you trust? And I believe it's also true for you individually. That God wants to do more in you and more through you than you can dream of. And he's not asking you To try to do it by yourself. He's saying in total dependence on Christ. In total dependence being filled by the Holy Spirit of God. Live the life he's called you to live. Obey in every area he's called you to obey. Trust that he knows better. 
Seek his word that it would fill you. And not your own ideas or your own thoughts, but allow the truths of God to renew your mind. And to obey everything that the Holy Spirit leads you to do. And as you do that, you will see God move in ways you never thought possible. Let's pray. Dear God, we just thank you for the truth of your scriptures. God, sometimes it is way, way, way beyond our comprehension. But God, we pray that you, through your Holy Spirit, would reveal the truths that we need tonight. And God, is there some of us here tonight and we read these words, God, I pray that you would strengthen. I pray that you would give power and love. I pray that you would fill with your spirit us tonight. For some of us, it means confession. We repent and we turn from our sins because we've been doing things. We've been allowing things into our lives that do not honor you and do not bring you glory. And tonight we need the strength to repent. Give us the gift of repentance tonight. And I pray men and women tonight would come before you and acknowledge their sin and turn from their sin. For some of us, we need a gift of faith. We need your Holy Spirit to give us the gift to trust you more. We've been apathetic or we've settled And tonight we need you to give us the faith to trust you to be who you are. An infinite God, an omnipotent creator. And God, I pray for men and women in this room tonight. And and whatever's going on in their lives, God, I pray that your power would be revealed in their lives. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Real quick, let me say a couple things. Thank you guys so much. And I'll use you as representatives of Cornerstone. Thank you for the difference you have made through the Angel Tree Project. It is amazing how many gifts have come in. Here's the deal. We still need more gifts. If, if you've not been able to participate yet, um, this is just like, this is the mind special. Um, you didn't have to bring your gift in tonight. If you could buy any possibility, bring it in sometime tomorrow. We still have tags out there that we would love for you to um, grab a tag, go to the store tomorrow, drop a gift off. Our, our goal is that every tag would be uh, taken. We did have a generous give, uh, gift of, of at least one check, if not more. That will help us purchase some gifts, but we're going to try to do that. Um, I see a pickup truck out there, but at last, um, the last word I got is if any of you are able to take just a moment, grab a bag and transport it over to the student center. That's where they're sorting and you can go over there and see what's going on. But we needed help moving the bags from the lobby into the student center. If you could do that, that would be a huge help for for the Angel Tree people. Thank you guys so much. Have a great week and we'll see you soon.